John chapter 4. I'm going to be reading verses 1 through 26. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making, making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God, and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water, so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. You can be seated. 
Father, I pray and ask that you will guard my mouth, that you will guard my heart, that I will not sin against you as I endeavor to preach your word rightly. Lord, your people need to hear from you. This includes me. Father, speak to us through your word. That we would be built up in our faith. That we would come to know our Savior better. That you would receive glory from us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Traveling through the book of John, we have an option to do so as a vacationer, someone who is just here to see the sights, to be entertained, perhaps to have our interest peaked, and then once we head back home, we take with us a few memories, some good, some not so good. Or we can travel through it like an archaeologist, seeking to learn, collecting as we go, and taking with us those things that we have gathered as we travel. How we travel marks us as either a disciple or a religious person. A religious person can be interested in the Bible. They can be interested in the things of God and still not be his. But a disciple isn't interested in being entertained. They're wanting to learn about their master, desiring to be changed, to be challenged, to decrease as their master increases in them. So let's look back at the things that we've gathered so far in our journey. Beginning in reverse order, we start in chapter three with the introduction to a Pharisee named Nicodemus who's a member of that ruling class called the Sanhedrin. We're also told that he was the teacher in Israel, verse 10. A man who would have been very, very intimately acquainted with the scriptures and the law of God. But none of his wealth, his knowledge or position did him any good when it came to understanding the things of God. He was part of that group that believed in the name of Christ that was spoken to us in chapter, chapter 2, verses 24 and 25. Those that are said to have believed in the name of Christ because of the signs that he had done, but to which Jesus would not entrust himself to, since he knew what was in man. The signs that are given to us in chapter 2 are singular in number, namely the changing of water to wine in the marriage feast verses 1 through 11. And then verses 1 through 15 of chapter 3 center on the conversation that Jesus had with this Pharisee. A conversation that was completely gospel-centered and gospel-saturated. A conversation that Nicodemus didn't understand. A conversation in which Jesus clearly stated the requirements to enter into his heavenly realm. A person must be born again, not of the flesh, nor the works of man, but of God. 
a conversation in which Jesus told Nicodemus how being born again happened. It was the work of the Spirit, verse 6. A work that was brought about just as the wind blows, not by man and not by being controlled by man. Because no man can produce wind and no man can prevent it either. Verses 7 and 8. He then explains the mission that he, the Messiah, had. The one that he had been sent on. It was a rescue mission. The rescue mission in which he would willingly lay down his life for those that his father had given him. Those that would look on him in faith and live. Verses 11 through 15. Verses 16 through 21 of chapter 3 are the commentary by the Apostle John on the conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus. A commentary that is filled with adoration and wonder at the amazing grace that saved a sinner such as me and you and the Apostle John. And then beginning in verse 22, we see Jesus moving away from Jerusalem and into the countryside. In that verse, we are told Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside and he remained there and was with them and was baptizing. This brings us to verse 1 and 2 of our section of scripture today. And in them, we are faced with a dilemma because verse 2 says that Jesus didn't baptize, but only his disciples did. So which is it? And how could John have gotten this fact wrong in chapter 3? The answer is he didn't. What he meant for us to see in verse 22 of chapter 3 is that for the Pharisees, they had their eye on Jesus ever since he entered Jerusalem especially during the Passover, after he had caused all that ruckus of kicking out the money changers and those that sold the animals from the court of Gentiles. And even more specifically, John wanted us to understand that for the Pharisees, the disciples of Jesus, and even John the Baptist and his disciples all fell under the umbrella of the ministry of Jesus. Any irregularity on their part was an irregularity on his. And we're forced to ask ourselves why Jesus would leave the center of the Jewish world at the height of the most important Jewish holiday season and start heading out to the boonies. Was he running away because the Pharisees had their eye on him? Was he deciding that after the events of the cleansing the temple and then the late night tongue lashing that he gave to the most important Pharisee, that maybe it was time for him to go lay low for a while. That wasn't the case. From the very outset of his ministry, Jesus was moving from one divinely appointment to another. His attendance at that wedding feast wasn't an accident. Neither was running out of wine. After the wedding feast, he stayed in Capernaum until the Passover was at hand. He could have gone up early to Jerusalem and gotten better accommodations if he wanted to. He could have beaten the rush. He could have relaxed at the center of the Jewish world and hung out. But he waited in Capernaum for a specified time to come about. A time that would put him in the temple at the exact moment 
where all the necessary materials and people would be there in order to make the cleansing happen. He had to be in Jerusalem during the Passover after the miracles that he had performed and after the word of those miracles had reached into the city in order that Nicodemus, this lost, desperate soul, would hear of them and then hear that the man of God who did these signs was in his city. And he was now moving toward another divinely appointment with a person that can only be best described as the anti-Nicodemus. Verses 4 through 6. He had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. Verse 4 is one that is loaded with meaning. Jesus was heading to Galilee, which would be his ministerial headquarters for much of his ministry. And Galilee was straight north of Judea. Galilee, Judea. Only there was a problem. Between Judea and Galilee was this land of the Samaritans, right in the middle of it. We're being told now in the United States that there is a systemic ethnic problem here. Whatever they are, they are nothing in comparison to the issues that divided the Samaritans and the Jews. So much so that Jews wouldn't even travel in Samaria. They would go way outside of their way not to set foot in that dreaded country and thereby possibly defile themselves. The history of the Samaritans dates all the way back to the divided kingdom after the death of Solomon. The southern kingdom kept Jerusalem as its capital. The northern kingdom built the city of Samaria as its capital. During the war with Assyria in 722 BC, the northern kingdom was defeated and most of the Jews there were deported. And the Assyrians brought in a mixture of ethnicities to replace them. The offsprings of the Jews that were left with those ethnicities became known as the Samaritans. And it isn't surprising that, at, with, that the ethnicities that came in and replaced those Jews brought with them their pagan gods. And over time, the weak Judaism that was in the northern kingdom became a mixture of Judaism and whatever those strange religious practices that these people brought in with them. By the time that Jesus came on the scene, they held that only the first five books of the Torah were scripture. They ignored the writings of all the prophets, they ignored the Psalms, and they ignored anything that mentioned the name Jerusalem. Their center of worship was at the Mount Gerizim and not the temple in Jerusalem. There was not only disdain for each other between these two groups, but there was open conflict between them very often, with numerous war crimes being committed by both sides for well over 200 years. This was the climate that was in place on that day that Jesus started walking on that dusty trail towards Galilee.
This is part of the reason why verse 4 is so loaded. To anyone of Jewish heritage that had read that Jesus had to go through Samaria, a very uneasy sense of discontent would have started to come overcome them. It's one thing for Jesus to meet with a Jewish religious official who stood opposed to him, but that he had to go to Samaria would have caused warning bells to go off in their heads. It would be akin to saying that Jesus, a devout OU fan, had to go to Stillwater. Wouldn't happen. There is still more treasure within this verse as well, though, for we're told that Jesus had to pass through Samaria. Now, Samaria did lie between Judea and Galilee. And Galilee. This is a fact. But Jesus could have gone around on the Transjordan Highway like most Jews did. This is what would have been expected of him since he was a Jew and a rabbi. But he had to pass through Samaria. Just like he had to be in Jerusalem during the Passover to meet with Nicodemus. He had to pass through Samaria. He had an appointment to keep. As I mentioned before, the Apostle John loves to give lots of background details and information surrounding the events concerning Jesus. Here, he tells us it was about the sixth hour. The Jewish day, their clock started at 6 a.m. in the morning, not midnight, 6 a.m. So the sixth hour would have been high noon, the beginning of the hottest part of the day in that semi-arid country. But he also wants us to see the humanity of Jesus in these verses. He got tired, weary from walking, just like us. Our Savior is God, but he's also human, and he understands the troubles that we face on a daily basis. He understood what it meant to be hungry and cold or hot. He understood tiredness. He understood pain both physical and emotional. He can identify with all those that he came in contact with, including the woman with whom he had this appointment, which is about to begin. Verse 7. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. Verse 8. For, this, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. I said this woman was the anti-Nicodemus. There were certainly those within the first century that would have been stretched in their comfort zone by the fact that Jesus would present the gospel to one of those hated religious class that were always persecuting them, who had put their Savior to death. But that stretching would have been nothing compared to Jesus speaking to this person. It was a woman. Yeah, I meant to use those words. For this is how women were by and large seen at that time before the advent of Christianity. We have to understand that it's the gospel in Christianity that sets the captives free, both ethnically and in our genders. Not only was it a woman, but it was a Samaritan woman which in a male-dominated, predominantly Jewish religious society would have been shocking 
Where Nicodemus may have been a Pharisee, a member of the Sanhedrin, at least he was a he. And he was Jewish. And to top it all off, at least he was morally upright, something that can't be said about this mongrel. Because women were seen more as property than people in those days, women didn't venture to the store alone. They didn't go to the field alone, and they certainly didn't go to fetch water alone. They always went to perform these chores in groups because there's safety in numbers. Also, no one went to get water in the middle of the day. They would do that in the early morning so that there'd be water to drink, to wash with, to clean with all day long. Or they would do it in the evening in preparation for the coming day. And we know that they were outside of the town of Sychar. This, is had to, this had to have been where the woman was from. There was water much closer to town than Jacob's well. Now, perhaps the quality of water was better from Jacob's well, but more than likely she came there because she knew she had less of a chance of running into people from the town and not suffer the humiliation and dispersion by running into them. The fact that this woman came alone to this well at that time of the day is meant to highlight a truth that we'll find out very soon about her. She was an immoral woman. In our day and age, that means nothing. Immoral women and men are the norm. We celebrate them. We encourage them. We laugh at them. Think how popular that, that show Friends is. It wasn't so in that day. And that's not to say that they were strict about keeping themselves to their spouses only. But there was a decorum that had been established. A game that everybody played. But she obviously didn't. She was a social outcast. Respectable people were not seen with her. They didn't associate with her. She was a second-class citizen who lived on the wrong side of the tracks in a country that had been determined by the Jews to be the wrong side of the tracks. Verse 9, the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus this Jewish man has begun a dialogue with the Samaritan woman. He said to her, give me a drink. The wording in the original text is given in such a way to convey that it was a polite command by him to her, not a harsh demand. There are commentaries by John found in both verses 8 and 9 concerning the circumstances surrounding this conversation and encounter. In verse 8, we're told why Jesus was alone. He had sent his disciples to the local market to purchase food. And then here in verse 9, we're told that Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Where do you think Jesus sent his disciples to purchase food from? Do you think he sent them six hours back to Israel to get food? No. 
he sent them to the local Samaritan town where this woman had come from. Jews could and sometimes did have dealings with Samaritans, but they were never social. They couldn't eat or drink with a Samaritan. Purchasing from them? Okay, not the best thing to do, but sometimes circumstances call for things like this to happen. But they would never defile themselves by using a utensil of a Samaritan. This is why the woman was so surprised and probably a bit cautious concerning this Jewish man who was sitting all alone by this well and who had begun this conversation with her. Remember, women were treated more like property than people. This woman would have been fair game to any man who had bad intentions in mind. And she found herself all alone in an isolated spot with a strange Jewish man who had now begun a conversation with her. Her response to him was a challenge. He had given her a polite command. What she said in return is meant to stop all conversation. It's meant to block any further interaction with him. It's meant to remind this Jew of who he was and who she was. It's meant to stop all conversation, all interaction. All she wanted was to be left alone. Verse 10, Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman is throwing up this roadblock. She wants to stop all further conversation with Jesus. She said, I know who I am and even what I am. And I know who you are and what you are. You shouldn't want anything to do with me. And I certainly want nothing to do with you. So why are you even speaking to me? His identity was that of a Jewish man, a thirsty Jewish man, but she didn't know who he truly was, nor did she know yet who she truly was. But he's drawing her out. He's drawing her in. His response doesn't even address her statement about his ethnicity or her gender. He first points to the important, to the eternal, in saying that she doesn't know the gift of God. And then... It's then that he directs his attention or her attention to himself. The gift of God. What is this gift of God that Jesus is speaking of here? Is he referring to salvation that's granted in the gospel message? The term gift of God is used 11 times in the New Testament and always denotes the grace offered by God. But four times, it specifically speaks of that gift as being the Holy Spirit, such as in Acts 2, verse 38. And Peter said, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Jesus clears up what he meant concerning the gift of God in saying that if she would have asked him, he would have given her living water. 
Now there is a truth that all running water is living water because there's life found within it. But this isn't what Jesus meant. And Jesus isn't speaking of himself here. He never claims to be living water. The bread of life? Yes. The door? Yes. The way, the truth, the life? Yes. But never living water. So what was he offering? What he was telling her that he alone could give was the same thing that he offered to Nicodemus, the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Godhead, of the Trinity. So the Jews knew God as God, a singular God. They had Deuteronomy 6.4 that says, Hear, O Israel, Yahweh our God, Yahweh is one. Theirs was a monotheistic God, not like the pagans who worshipped many gods, who served a, a multitude of deities. But then there are other texts, such as Genesis 1.26, that says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. Or Genesis 11, 6 and 7, when after humans had constructed the Tower of Babel, God said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do, and nothing that they purpose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So which is it? Was their God one, or was he a multiplied God? The answer is yes. Jesus was revealing the truth of the triune nature of God in the offering living water to this woman. He's drawing on the truth of who God is, as found in such places as Jeremiah 2, 12 and 13, which says, Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked, be utterly desolate, declares Yahweh. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Or Jeremiah 7.13. O Yahweh, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you shall be put to shame. Those who turn away from you shall be written in the earth, for they have forsaken Yahweh, the fountain of living water. But it was to these same immoral, hard-hearted, and, and evil people that God promises his children that he will restore them. Jeremiah 31, 31-34, he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares Yahweh, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares Yahweh. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares Yahweh. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall one teach his neighbor 
and each his brother, saying, Know Yahweh, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares Yahweh, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sins no more. Jesus was the fulfillment of this prophecy. In him flowed this living water. The living water that soon would be poured out in Judea and would then overflow into Samaria and then into the entire world. And once this spring had been tapped, it would flow eternally. We're told concerning the saints that come out of the tribulation period, they shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Revelation 7, 16 and 17. Did you see, did you hear the triune nature of God once again in that? And then in Revelation 21, 5 and 7, says the same thing. He says, And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. To the one who conquers... I'm sorry, the one who conquers will have this heritage and I will be his God and he will be my son. But at this moment, this woman, just like Nicodemus, could only focus on the temporal, on the earthly things. She couldn't comprehend the majesty of this tired, dusty, thirsty Jewish man who was speaking to her. She said to him, verse 11, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? And then verse 12, Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. The woman's defenses are starting to fall. Her first response to Jesus had been terse and confrontational. But here she begins with calling him, Sir, a term of respect. Remember the Samaritans didn't accept the writings of the prophets as gospel, so that she wouldn't have known the references made by Jeremiah. Maybe this is why, or at least part of the reason why, just in the encounter with Nicodemus, she's thinking of the temporal, of the earthly. When Nicodemus had been told of the need of the second birth to see the kingdom of God, all he could think about was trying to climb back into his mother's womb and the impossibility of that. In the conversation with Nicodemus, Jesus had used something temporal to explain the eternal. He used the wind to explain the work of the Spirit. In the encounter with this woman, he has done the same thing. Only in this encounter, he's using water, not to explain the how of the second birth, but the effects of it. This woman, when told of the living water that Jesus could give her, looked at the well, which was over 100 feet deep, looked back at this tired man, who had neither a jar to draw with, nor a rope to hook the jar to, 
and knew that he was delusional. Jacob's well at that time had been providing water for people for over a thousand years. Jacob's well is still there providing water to all that come to it. The response from this woman to Jesus may have become with sir, but it was still full of derision. In essence, what she is saying and what she's doing is reminding this Jewish male of their common ancestry in the patriarch Jacob and the fact that he was a patriarch, not just a tired, thirsty Jewish man. Her question to him, are you greater than our father Jacob, was the defining question for her. While the Samaritan's religion was a blend of many false religions, with the true gospel of God, they still held to a coming Messiah, as spoken of in the Torah, the one who could, who could provide water without a bucket, without a rope, as God had done in Exodus 17, 1 through 7, when water gushed forth from that rock that had been struck by Moses, or in Numbers 20, when Moses sinned against God by striking the rock that he had been told to speak to, but which still produced water gushing from it. What this woman was rhetorically asking was, are you claiming to be the prophet like Moses, as promised to us in Deuteronomy 18, 15, and 19? Jacob wasn't. And he and his sons and their livestock all drank from this well. It was good enough for them. How can you now say that it's not adequate? Verses 13 and 14, Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Just as in the encounter with Nicodemus, Jesus doesn't get offended. He doesn't respond to the personal attacks. He just tells these, his lost sheep, the truth of who he is and the reality of the life and gift that only he can give. As good as the water that came from Jacob's well was, the truth is that everyone who drank of it did get thirsty again. The promise from this Jewish man seems much too good to be true to this woman. Verse 15, she says, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Her response to him, though with marked with some respect by calling him sir, was also filled with lots of sarcasm. In essence, what she's saying to him is, Man, I'd love to have some of that miracle water so I would never have to suffer the humiliation of coming back here daily to get the water. Never have to make the effort to walk all this way. I just have this water gushing from me and I stay at home. Verse 16, Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one that you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The conversation between Jesus and this woman has now taken a marked turn. The same thing happened with the conversation with Nicodemus. 
Then Jesus had begun the conversation with him by telling Jesus or Nicodemus spiritual, eternal truths, which this learned religious leader didn't understand. It was at that point that Jesus made the conversation personal with Nicodemus, asking him, are you the teacher of Israel and don't understand these things? He's done the same thing now with this unlearned Samaritan woman. She had mockingly asked Jesus, are you greater than Jacob? And now, in this one statement, he has shown that he is. That he is, in fact, greater than Jacob in all the patriarchs of old. His question to her is probably pretty stinging to our ears. That's because none of us like to be confronted with sin. We don't think that it's kind to do that. We don't think it's loving or caring to be confronted with sin or to confront others with sin. Jesus knew better than this. Confronting sin is the most kind, loving, and caring thing that we can ever do with another human being. As long as we do it, with the same heart that Jesus had. He told her, go call your husband. And then he commends her for at least being truthful and saying that she doesn't have one. Her answer, while being truthful, was probably a delaying tactic, a deflecting tactic. If he required a husband from me, <laughs> well, I don't have one of those. His response to her in telling her that she's been honest about not having a husband and then telling her the truth of her immorality, that she's had actually five husbands and had seemingly given up on the institution of marriage because she's now living in sin with the man, must have hit her like a ton of bricks. As harsh as this may sound to our ears, it was in fact very surgical in its truth. Jesus isn't accusing her of being a prostitute, as many as claimed that she must have been. More likely, she was a victim of a society where men could divorce a woman for any reason, for any small reason, even something as small as putting too much salt on their eggs. This system would leave a woman who had been divorced as a pariah in society, and the social decline would only escalate as the husband stacked up to the point that she hadn't given up on the institution of marriage, but the man that she was now living with, who was her covering, her protection, thought so little of her that he wouldn't even marry her. But no matter the circumstances, she was still living in sin. Her sin has been exposed which is exactly what the water of salvation is intended to quench. Zechariah 13.1 says, On that day there shall be a fountain open for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanliness. Verse 19 and 20, This woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is a place where people ought to worship. The intended purpose of the pointing out her deepest, darkest secrets 
And the sin that hung from her like a bad dress was now having its intended purposes. She now acknowledges that this man, who at first she wanted nothing to do with, was in fact at least a man of God. Maybe a man from God, a prophet. But she does something that most of us will do. She tries to move the conversation off of her to a much more general and less sensitive one, where God should be worshipped at. What she's trying to do is deflect. She's trying to um, use the differing places of worship as a ruse to go Jesus into talking about something other than herself. She's trying to change the subject, and he would have none of it. Verse 21 and 22, Jesus said, Woman, Believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you don't know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. Verses 23 and 24. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. His response to her begins with the same term of affection that he used in speaking to his mother at the wedding feast. It's the same term that he used, or he will use, when he's nailed to the cross minutes from his earthly death as he makes final provisions for her earthly existence. His response is shocking to her. Because there was a separation between Jews and the Samaritans that was generations old, that was seemingly impassable to overcome. And yet here, in this one sentence, Jesus unites them in the worship of the same God. And followed by the term woman, he tells her what she must do in order to truly worship God. God. It's the same thing that John has told us in chapter 18 of verse 3. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. What she must do is believe. She must believe. The use of the word salvation here is the only time that John will use this word in his gospel. The only time. The Samaritans worshiped God improperly. This was something that Jesus wasn't dismissing, which is why he states that they worship what they don't know. At the same time, the indictment against the Jews is that they worship what they do know. The Jews have been quick to grasp the promise of God to Abraham, that he would bless them. They were happy to have that, but they failed to remember the reason that he was blessing them, in order that they would be a blessing to all the nations. Genesis 12, 2 and 3. This is why it's important that we get this prepositional phrase correct here. Salvation was not by the Jews, nor is salvation in the Jews. It came from them, out from them. They themselves did nothing to bring it to fruition, except maybe crucify the Lord of salvation. 
We also need to pay special attention to verse 23. For in it, Jesus speaks of the already and not yet of the kingdom of God and those that are citizens thereof. He tells us that an hour is coming and is now here. This isn't a riddle. This isn't an oxymoronic statement. He's speaking of himself, the one who had been with the Father from eternity past and now who stands before this woman and who will, in a short amount of time, bring about the reality of the already and not yet through his death, burial, and resurrection. And finally, look at me at the last part of verse 23 again. It says, The Father is seeking such people to worship him. This is a bad rendering of that Greek word. The word there that is translated as seeking should be rightly translated as demands more than seeks. But in either sense, it's still shocking that it's God who is the one who is seeking his own or even demanding his own to worship him properly and not the people seeking him or desiring to worship him properly. That can't happen yet. The separation between humans, the ethnic barriers that caused division and strife still stood. And even greater, the eternal separation between man and God because of our sin was yet to be dealt with. Those that worship in spirit, those that are drawn by the Father will all be drawn to the cross of Calvary where all the ancient hatreds of ethnicity come to die. There is no Greek in heaven. There is no Jew in heaven. And there's no Samaritan in heaven. They are all equal at the foot of the cross. They are all children of God. And they will all worship in spirit and truth. We would do well to remember this truth now today in the church. There should be no white churches or black churches or Hispanic churches. There should only be the church. We are united at the foot of the cross. Jesus did not offer a second-rate salvation to this person who was a social pariah, who was looked down on because of her ethnicity. He sought her out. He had to go to Samaria. And he challenged her with the exact same gospel that he challenged Nicodemus with. There is no second lower gospel. We are all equal at the foot of the cross. Verse 25. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. This woman who Jesus sought out, who he had purposefully engaged, and who he had lovingly challenged with the reality of her own sin and life, has now dropped all pretense. She's no longer trying to end the conversation with Jesus. 
She's no longer trying to deflect. Her heart is open now to the spiritual things. But the irony is, is that here, she's standing in front of the Messiah, telling the Messiah what he should expect when the Messiah comes on the scene. Just like with Nicodemus, she recognized her need for a savior. She desired to know God, but she couldn't grasp the man that stood in front of her was God. Verse 26, Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Jesus ended the conversation with Nicodemus by telling him that he was the son of man and that the Son of Man must be lifted up just as a serpent in the wilderness was. There's an irony found in this verse, though. This Jewish Messiah reveals himself for the first time as the Messiah. Not to Nicodemus, not in Jerusalem, in Samaria, to a woman. This is just as ironic as the fact that the king of kings was born in a stable. Here, he ends the encounter with this woman in telling her that he's the Messiah. This is the end of this account, of this part of this account. We may think that it's strange or maybe even anticlimactic that we're not told that this woman comes to Christ and lives happily ever after. That her, the man that she's living with, you know, takes her in and marries her and they have lots of kids and life is grand. This is what we'd like to be told. This is what we would like to think. But the reality is, is that she is not the focal point of this account any more than Nicodemus was the focal point of chapter 3. Jesus is the focal point. His love for people is what is supposed to be on display here. It is what we are supposed to marvel at, that he would condescend to travel through the desert in the heat of the day to be at Jacob's well at the exact moment that this woman showed up in order that he could turn her world upside down. This is what we're supposed to wonder at. He is the hero of this account. And he's once again done the unthinkable, the unexplainable, the unusual. He has demonstrated the love of God for sinners, just like he's done for you and for me. God is excessive in spending his resources in bringing his truth to his children. Think about what he gave. He first gave his most prized possession, his most loved son for us. And then he gives us his children, their lives, their talents, their treasures, and bringing those that will worship him in spirit and truth to him. If you are his, 
Think back to the events that surround your conversion. Think back to the people that brought that gospel truth to you. The sacrifices that they made in their lives. To the life experiences that you were dealing with that brought you to the end of yourself. None of these things happened by chance. Jesus had to travel through Samaria. Just as Jesus had to be there on that day. He had to bring his gospel to you. He had to bring that heartache or pain in your life that would lead you to the end of yourself. That happened all by Jesus, through Jesus, and even for Jesus. Let us wonder at the gift of the living water that flows through Jesus into us for all eternity. And let us praise God that the Father is still seeking those that will worship him in spirit and truth. Let's pray.